HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. <laughs> Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to be talking about what the Democratic candidates are saying about farm policy and agriculture in the United States. And with me on the line today is Leah Douglas. She is an associate editor and staff writer at FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. I've been a big champion of theirs ever since they geared it up, I don't know how many years ago now. Uh, Prior to joining the team, she worked for three years as a reporter and policy analyst with the Open Markets Institute, where she researched economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agriculture industry. She founded and wrote Food and Power, a first-of-its-kind resource on food sector consolidation. i got to check that out, Leah. And her writing on food, agriculture, and land policy has appeared in The Nation, The Washington Monthly, The Journal of Food Law and Policy, CNN, Fortune, Time, Slate, Daily Yonder, Civil Eats, and more. Leah has held a variety of jobs in the food system, including working on farms, co-running a CSA, and facilitating the development of rural food buying co-ops. Oh my God, what a CV, and you look like such a young thing. How did you get all this done already? (laughs) I'm jealous. Leah, can you hear me? Thanks for having me, Katie. Oh, there you are. Okay. I, I missed that first thing, but anyway. So, Leah, uh, we, I called you because um, you attended the Heartland Forum in Iowa last month, which was organized by the Family Farmers Union. I want you to tell us all about that event because it was kind of exciting. Yes, yeah, it was a great event. So, yeah, the Heartland Forum happens in a Storm Lake, Iowa, which is a rural small town in Iowa, and it was uh, moderated by the town's 
Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the local paper, Art Cullen, and yep. uh, co-sponsored by uh, Open Markets Action and the Iowa Farm Union, among other groups, and HuffPost was the media partner. Um, so it was a really vibrant event. I traveled there on a bus with uh, some farmers from the Wisconsin Farmers Union, many of whom had gotten up as early as 12.30 or 1 a.m. to get there. Um, wow. So there was some serious commitment from the crowd um, to attending the forum. Mm-hmm. So who, well, first of all, what was why was the forum organized? What was it for? Was it just for uh, Democratic candidates to show off that they care about farmers, or was there actually another agenda? That was essentially the purpose. I think it was, it was um, the idea was to have sort of the first opportunity for presidential hopefuls to really share their rural agenda and to share it in a place that is a rural community as opposed to from a major city or many of the other places where later presidential debates will happen. So this was an opportunity for folks who live in this community and for farmers who are, you know, located in other parts of the Midwest and rural advocates from the area to be able to better access the candidates at this stage in their campaigns and to really hear for the first time what are some of the top issues that um, candidates will be talking about as they're rolling out their agriculture platforms. Well, the fact that there is an agriculture platform is kind of a new thing in and of itself, don't you think? I mean, I don't remember that happening in the last cycle. I covered the politics for that pretty carefully myself because I kept hoping there would be something about food and agriculture and somehow nobody ever really talked about it in any substantive way. So that that was kind of a new thing in, uh, just by itself, wasn't it? Yes, I think it's really uh, remarkable this year how early and how often several of the candidates are talking about agriculture and rural issues, I think there's more awareness, especially uh, understanding how many uh, communities and rural places in the country did go for President Trump. Um, And I think Democrats are really looking to uh, unseat his popularity in some of those places and also to to speak to the 40 percent of rural voters who, who don't support President Trump. So I think there is some more motivation this cycle to really make it clear that Democrats are thinking about issues that uh, stretch beyond the coast. Oh, that's really nice. So so one of the people that showed up at this was Elizabeth Warren, but who were the other ones? Yes, so Elizabeth Warren uh, was the was sort of the opening speaker, and she was followed uh, by and joined by uh, Julian Castro, the former Housing and Urban Development Secretary under Obama, uh, John right. Delaney, who's a former Maryland congressman, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, and uh, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, who at the time had not announced his candidacy but has since. So the five of them were the participants in the forum. Right. And so what was the what was the message, essentially? So messages varied, but I would say um, the takeaway that I had and that a lot of folks had was that antitrust enforcement was really the biggest issue, which is really interesting because I think a lot of um, rural advocates and farmers have spoken to the need for stronger antitrust enforcement, for better antitrust policy in the agriculture sector for a long time, for decades. But it's rarely sort of been a flashy um, policy arena. Very few people historically have really tried to push that issue to the forefront of, of voters' minds. But I think in the last few years, we've really seen a sea change where, especially as consolidation has reshaped basically every sector of the economy, and as consumers, we can see that more and more um, happening in our daily lives. The issue of antitrust has really risen in this campaign cycle, and more candidates are speaking to it. So Elizabeth Warren, when she rolled out her 
rural and agriculture platform in the days leading up to the forum, it was really an antitrust, predominantly an antitrust platform talking about breaking up big mega mergers in the agriculture space, uh, about the power that agribusiness has over small farmers and how farmers are being driven out of business as a result. Um, so that was a really, a really common theme throughout the speakers. Amy Klobuchar also discussed that issue. She's the ranking member on the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee, so has a lot of experience in that realm. And uh, there were a couple other themes that arose from uh, rural education access to broadband to right. addressing the flooding that's ongoing in the Midwest. Um, but I would say that agribusiness and the power of agribusiness is really the, the dominant theme. I think it's interesting that Amy Klobuchar, who comes from an ag state, uh, is just and who's been in office for a while is just now beginning to talk about this, don't you? I mean, ooh, that just just makes me kind of mad, frankly. Yes, I mean, I would say you know Amy Klobuchar did speak to it at the event, um, though uh, maybe with a higher. It's not as high on her list of priorities necessarily, or at least as she's expressed them so far, as it is for Elizabeth Warren. Um, Warren also made an appearance that there, uh, there was a rally that preceded the forum um, that was right. hosted by a, a coalition of farm groups, and Warren also made an appearance there and really got the crowd excited about her ideas about breaking up um, big ag, which also dovetails with her economic policy priorities around big tech, for instance, where she's also put a lot of attention. So I think that um, she's really been dominating the conversation and, and Amy Klobuchar has been joining in. Uh-huh. And, and just what were what were her ideas for breaking up big ag? Because, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about invoking antitrust laws, but um, so far nobody's had the sand to do it. And we certainly don't have an attorney general who's willing to pursue that. So what, what were her concepts? What did she say something that you hadn't heard before? <laughs> Sure. So her her uh, policy platform um, is pretty um, direct and aggressive, like many of her ideas around economic policy and the concentration of economic power. She's discussed unwinding the Bayer-Monsanto merger, which is an idea that I haven't heard other candidates um, necessarily articulate or back. Um, she's yeah. talked about um, stronger enforcement of um, of mergers, and more proclivity to block mergers um, and appointing folks to the regulatory agencies that oversee agribusiness mergers um, who are more inclined to be um, critical or skeptical. Um, and she talked about um, a national right to repair law, which is an issue that um, many folks don't know about, but that is a big deal in the farming community where um, because just a couple of companies control the vast majority of farm equipment, they yeah. often have policies in which farmers have to go to one of their uh, shops or, you know, approved uh, repair uh, repair people in order to have their equipment fixed, and farmers can't do it themselves on the farm, um, which is a relatively new concept. Many farmers have spent decades repairing their own equipment. So that's become a really major issue that is one of the ripple effects of consolidation in the sector. Right. So Warren added that into her platform, which is also something that, um, you know, it's almost sort of a niche issue um, that, you know, I think farmers really appreciated that she was able to see that as an important as an important thing to add. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It sounds like she did her homework. 
<laughs> so how exactly. did how did the crowd respond? What what was the what was the response? Were they enthusiastic or was it kind of like, yeah, well, we've heard some of this before? Because I mean, didn't the Obama administration basically say most of the same things when they swung through uh, the Midwest in the first uh, campaign cycle in twenty oh eight? Yes, um, you know, candidate Barack Obama did make a lot of promises around uh, better regulating large-scale uh, livestock operations and addressing consolidation in agribusiness. And actually, throughout the Obama administration, there was an effort um, led by uh, the Department of Justice and the Department of Agriculture to address some of the issues of consolidation that had come up that farmers were sort of repeatedly uh, concerned about. And um, ultimately, that all those meetings that came from that work led nowhere. And many yeah. farmers, who, including farmers who attended this forum, participated in that process and had conversations with the Obama administration about the issue of consolidation and the power of agribusiness and how important it was to address. And, you know, remember that uh, nothing happened. It's, it's definitely a fresh memory. So um, I think that, you know, despite that, I think there's still, I saw, you know, a lot of optimism and energy. I think you know, some folks are still withholding their commitments to any candidates because we're early in the process. Uh, but I think there is still um, some hope that maybe this time things can look different and that the Democratic candidate um, will maybe understand that given what happened under Obama, that this is sort of a second chance opportunity. I spoke to one farmer who said, you know, if, uh, to paraphrase, uh, if they mess it up this time, you know, there's going to be a backlash to that. So I think that um, folks were still eager to hear the message and were excited about antitrust sort of taking center stage. And I think also um, are, you know, aware that we've been down this path before. Right, right. And I, I guess it's too early to say if there were any Republicans who were sharing that message. But are, do you have, <clears throat> with your ear to the ground, do you hear of any Republicans who are, um, you know, speaking similarly about breaking up big agriculture or are they, uh, you know, think that big agriculture is just fine and it's working just great, as Thomas Massey from um, uh, Kentucky told me. <laughs> you know, I haven't I haven't heard really any Republican candidates um, jumping onto this particular type of messaging. But, you know, uh -huh. we'll have another year or so to see if anyone emerges. Right. Because it's certainly I mean, I don't hear even Sonny Perdue saying anything about this. And why would he, of course? Um, so you don't think, I don't think that, um, it, it sounds like you're not sure that the Trump administration has reached uh, its wall in terms of these voters. In other words, they're not ready to jump ship yet. They're still kind of waiting and seeing. It's not not a done deal for them. Because, I mean, I, you know, given the trade policies and all of the other stuff that's happened, if I, you know, if I had supported Trump in the first cycle, I certainly would not be prepared to support him again. But what what was your sense? Well, sure. I think, um, you know, many of the farmers at the forum uh, weren't necessarily Trump voters. So either they had supported a Democrat, um, at least some of the farmers that I met supported a Democrat in the last election. Um, but, I, but from what they said around organizing their communities that may be a little bit more politically diverse, um, you know, I think that there's still, there's still work to be done. I think that, you know, particularly the trade, the ongoing trade war has really depressed uh, prices for a certain type of farmer who sure. sells into the export market. Um, and also the situation in the dairy industry has become so dire that I think that there's really sort of um, historic alliances being made in that sector across party lines, across uh, size of farm, 
uh, where folks are really just noticing, you know, we're reaching a point where we can't really afford to have these same uh, battle lines anymore. We have to try to figure out a way to work together. So I think it will be interesting to see how that uh, how that perspective and how the sort of dire state of the farm economy uh, translates into votes, because I think there is an opportunity, at least from what I heard from organizers in Iowa, that they see an opportunity to try to get some of those folks who, who feel disillusioned or feel um, that something needs to change. So I think that there's, you know, definitely folks who are still um, on the fence or waiting to hear more. But um, I would say that the reaction at the forum was generally positive to the ideas that those set of Democrats were presenting. Right, right. Now, you know, aside from the idea of unwinding the Bayer-Monsanto merger, and, you know, to be honest with me, that seems, you know, it's like the cow is already out of the barn. Like, how do you unwind something like that? And what about the ones that preceded it, the Dow, DuPont, the, you know, Syngenta, ChemChina, not that those are American companies, but still, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know how you back that, how you back that one into something where that you can actually force these companies to, um, you know, make that change. I, I, I don't understand how that would work. Do you? You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren hasn't announced any specifics of technically how it would work. So I also don't know how it would work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And what about other things like, um, well, we're going to get into those in a minute. But um, you've been writing about consolidation for quite a while. And obviously, it's, you know, as your bio indicates, it's been a big um, source of, of uh, you know, interest for you. What do you think it will take to break up these monopolies? I mean, never mind what Elizabeth Warren thinks. But I mean, what do you t- think it will take? Um, is it is it just lawsuits uh, enforcing antitrust? Is it um, I don't know. You tell me. What is the answer? Sure. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. What's your prescription so I, for fixing the food system, Leah? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I mean well, seriously, I as somebody who's question. really covered this for a long time, like, what do you think is the answer, or one of the answers? Definitely. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a few ways to look at it. And, and the focus of my work has really been, especially in the last couple of years, on sort of what I call the ripple effects of consolidation. So we have the uh-huh. sort of technical machinery of consolidation, which looks like mergers and um, acquisitions and the regulatory process that happens at the federal level to oversee um, those mergers and acquisitions, which is our antitrust you know, our sort of, when you think about antitrust law, that's kind of the, the federal level enforcement. Um, but a lot of what I write about is what's kind of happening in communities that are affected by uh, highly consolidated industries, whether it's the, the, uh, the emergence of factory farms in many states that didn't used to have large-scale industrial agriculture and the environmental impacts of that on people's health, on water and air, um, or looking at job losses as a result of mergers and acquisitions, or right. how the uh, agribusiness industry has used its political power to change the laws at the state and federal level um, because they've accumulated more and more power as the companies have become more and more, uh, have, have uh, eclipsed smaller competitors and the market share is split between just two or three companies in several sectors. So I think that given that sort of wide scope of impacts, there's a lot of different um, policy changes that could be made that would ameliorate uh, some of the, the harm that's done by um this ongoing consolidation. So, you know, on the preventative end, you have um, 
you know, some of the federal enforcement issues that, for instance, Warren was talking about, about um, having regulators and judges who um, are, you know, not necessarily going to rubber stamp um, any merger that comes across the table. Um, There's also things that can be done at the state level and that certainly um, state and local advocates are, are working on around the clock, like making it harder to permit um, large-scale industrial animal uh, farm operations or um, enhancing local control over how land is used or zoning, things like that, that are sort of more in the nitty-gritty of of local legislation that has a lot of impact on how uh, communities actually um, deal with the the changing face of the farm economy. And then I think there's also the, the piece about addressing the market as it is, you know, as you said, it's it's not entirely clear um, right away what it would take to sort of unwind this the, these mergers that have happened, especially those that are even more entrenched than the Bayer Monsanto merger, which was just completed last year. So, I think there's there's also pieces around um, our regulations around farm pollutants, whether it's um, manure or other types of waste that uh, the agribusiness industry has really successfully deregulated um, that sector and how how those pollutants are managed um, or addressing the power of co-ops, for instance, that have uh, departed from their original intent as, you know, entities that serve the farmer. Uh, so right. I think that there's things that you can sort of do on the, uh, the, the, the side of addressing how these companies operate now and what their impact is on our political ecosystem that could also marry sort of the preventative elements. Absolutely. We're going to, that was a great answer, by the way, you, you rose to <laughs> the you. challenge extremely <laughs> well. <laughs> um, we're going to take a real short break and I mean, very short break. Uh, and we'll be right back with Leah Douglas from the food and environment reporting network. We're talking about uh, what the democratic candidates are saying about how to manage the farm economy going forward. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Do you love this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. We have over 35,000 shows in our online library. My name is Jennifer Leutzi, and I'm the host of Tech Bites, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. You can find Tech Bites wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back. Um, so, <laughs> so you um, you recently, um, well, as an ex- as an example of consolidation in agriculture, let's talk about the piece that you just published in partnership with the Oregonian about the mega dairy uh, that went. Uh, belly up in Oregon, uh, leaving such a disastrous mess that the state is now considering a moratorium on allowing any more mega dairies uh, to locate in Oregon. So uh, tell us a little bit about that situation. What happened? And um, and why did that company go belly up? I, I, I'm blanking on that right now. 
Sure. So uh, the farm that I wrote about for the Oregonia is called Lost Valley Farm, and it was a dairy CAFO, which is uh, basically a large-scale animal operation uh, that housed about 15,000 cows and in uh, Boardman, Oregon. And it was opened in 2017, uh, despite the fact that uh, there was a lot of community resistance from people who live in Oregon against uh, the opening of this CAFO. And uh, it was the second largest uh, dairy operation in the state, and it was sourcing mm-hmm. uh, the Tillamook uh, dairy operation, which makes Tillamook cheese, which uh, many of us have seen in the grocery store. And sure. uh, it was sort of a a, uh, a tortured process from the start uh, to get this dairy approved. The owner uh, was missing some of his water permits, and it was, uh, you know, state officials um, were sort of uh, attempting to fast-track um, his approval process, and ultimately the farm just wasn't uh, managed well enough to to handle particularly the manure that was created by all these tens of thousands of cows. So as a result, uh, fairly quickly there were spillages and other types of, um, you know, run, runoff uh, issues yep. that were stemming from the manure that was being mismanaged. And uh, the farm just started racking up fines from state regulators and eventually was was shuttered as a result of this mismanagement. So it was okay. uh, shut down and sold uh, just this past in this past couple of months. Uh, right, and right. so what I wrote about in in my story for the Oregonian was this sort of whole boondoggle um, spurred a conversation in the state about whether to just block uh, to have a moratorium on any more similar operations. And uh, Oregon kind of sits in an interesting place in terms of uh, its, its penetration of CAFOs because it's not necessarily a state that has fully shifted its dairy production, for instance, into large-scale mega farms. Uh, there's still only like a couple farms that, that look like that in the state, and there's still a, a fairly high number of small to medium-sized dairy farms. So it's a little bit in, in sort of a a decision-making process about, you know, which which sort of direction do we want to send the dairy industry. And so that is the sort of opportunity that some advocates are taking to say we should, you know, stop allowing these um, permits for, for farms that look like this and we should, you know, reconsider our permitting process. Uh, so that's uh, that, that bill that would issue that moratorium is currently being considered by the state legislature. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now let's back up for a second about this. Now these these the you said in the story that the state regulators um essentially fast tracked this guy's permits. They were very anxious to let him start uh running this business. What is it economically speaking what is it that would have made them so eager to uh let somebody build a facility like this? Especially in the way, in light of the uh local community pushback. What 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 are they gaining by that? by having done that? That's a great question. I, I think that there's uh, an economic component. I mean, I think the dairy, the state's dairy industry uh, is, is pretty powerful. Uh, I, when I was researching the piece, I found a statistic that just milk production in the state in 2017 totaled about $500 million. So, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's not necessarily small potatoes, especially given, um, you know, Oregon sort of, as I said, you know, trans- it's in this transitional place where it's deciding, you know, how and whether to, to compete with other states in dairy. So um, that's one element that uh, could have been contributing. I also note in my piece that um, the agriculture industry is a big political contributor in the state of Oregon. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the biggest dairy in the state has donated over $200,000 to candidates uh, since 2006. And um, the Oregonian actually had done a big project earlier in the year on um, Oregon's sort of unique, um, uniquely lax regulations on corporate donations. And is actually, Oregon is actually the first, the top country in the state in per capita uh, corporate money donations in politics, which is, you know, surprising, was surprising to me because of Oregon's uh, sort of, I guess, now outdated reputation as as kind of a green state. Um, so there is like also a political uh, donation element that um, could be in part of the ecosystem of the decision-making process. Oh yeah, I would, <laughs> I think we could safely assume that, but I just, you know, in the wake of the um, sort of all of the reporting that has come out just in the last few years about um, one, the disastrous uh, failure of industry, whether it's the dairy industry or the animal agricultural industry at large to manage their effluent, um, that that in and of itself would be a bit of a deterrent. I mean, you, I know you said that, that, that they had donated something like $200,000, but that's over a long period of time, so it's not even that much money. And that's the thing that really struck me about your story was like, we're not talking about millions of dollars here being donated to political parties. Um, we're talking about pretty much chump change, especially over the course of, you know, roughly 13, 14 years. And I just, I, I just found it really peculiar that these people are so out of touch with the reality of what these uh, companies do when they move into a community and they build these lagoons and the impact on local waterways and, and basically quality of life. And I just, I find it very curious that they have such a blind eye to this. What, why do you think, what do you think accounts for that? You know, it's it's hard to say, and, and as a non-Oregon uh, resident, you know, I'm not as up on the local politics as, you know, certainly I think there are folks in the state who would have a much better understanding of, particularly for the, for the state of Oregon, why that's happening. I did find it kind of striking that uh, the site that um, Lost Valley Farm was sitting on was actually already a, a, a site that the Department of Environmental Quality, the state environmental regulator, had already given a special designation because of nitrate pollution and nitrates are the common are common oh farm um, pollutants. So I did find it kind of curious that on that site that, you know, has for years been been identified as an area where the groundwater is somewhat polluted, um, that right. there was then approved of a major polluting operation um, was was very curious to me. Yeah, very strange. I mean, the last couple of shows I've done have been about um, communities trying to organize pushback against KFOs. That's why I'm asking you these questions about this, because, you know, it just it stuns me that these, uh, you know, the people who are supposedly in charge of taking care of the population's well-being, essentially, um, you know, for a few bucks, you know, thrown their way for their next political campaign are willing to throw the entire community under the bus, including themselves and their own families. I mean, they live there. They got to drink that water. They got to breathe that air. You know, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me. But, um, you know, because, I mean, to move on to the next, my next question is, you know, every state, basically, that has allowed CAFOs, uh, you know, to proliferate in their states has seen a major loss of family farms, uh, which which has, obviously, tremendous economic implications. Um, and then it's also compu- coupled with this significant air and water pollution. And yet, uh, somehow, the industry has managed to stave off any meaningful regulation, especially about managing effluent. 
I mean, talk about externalizing your costs absolutely brilliantly. It's just, it's really blows my mind. It makes me almost Mm. incoherent with rage, actually, as you can probably tell. Um, But but do you have a sense that the communities that people are, you know, starting to wake up and smell the turds in the air? I mean... (laughs) I mean, are they are there more organized is there more organizing going on um that you feel is is kind of a groundswell or is it just sort of these little pockets of people feebly trying to organize and and failing to you know get their state regulators to do the right thing That's a great question and I think you know I think that there is uh just an enormous amount of community labor and organizing that's going into uh, really pushing back on this direction that the agriculture industry is headed. And certainly in the span of my relatively short career compared to the many of these organizers and advocates who have been working on this issue for decades, I've seen uh, just a, you know, a larger and larger number of, you know, communities who at, from the smallest level to the state level are really working on campaigns and, and working on organizing their communities across party lines and across difference to really push against um, particularly these large-scale animal operations that can have such a dramatic negative impact on people's health uh, and quality of life. So, you know, I think that there is um, a lot of energy to push against that. And I think that, um, you know, it's there have been some victories at the state level, at the local yeah. level of, of moving, um, pushing back against new CAFOs. And we're seeing sort of the series of legal victories that um, the plaintiffs in North Carolina are winning against Smithfield as a result right. of um, you know, the mismanagement of hog operations in North Carolina, uh, which is, is giving people a lot of hope and energy, I think. Um, so there is, I think, um, as the situation, you know, unfortunately sort of continues to get worse or go down the status quo path, I think that there is uh, more and more uh, resistance against it. Well, that's encouraging to hear. I mean, I, I, you know, I hope that's true. I, you know, I sit in my little perch and I interview, I, you know, I follow all these news stories and I interview locals. Uh, you know, I've been talking to people in Iowa. I've been talking to people in North Carolina. So I know that there's a lot of activity around it. It's just hard to sense how much uh, community involvement there is. You know, there's always like a few hundred people who are really passionate about it. And then the rest of the people are just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. Or, um, you know, they t- they think that it brings employment to the area, which it generally does, speaking does not do because CAFOs don't tend to employ a lot of people. So, again, I thought it was odd that, um, you know, in your story about the this uh, dairy operation that, uh, you know, was given a free pass, essentially, um, that they, they saw that as an economic opportunity for the community when really, uh, you know, those kinds of big milking barns don't employ a lot of people um, that I'm aware of. I could certainly be wrong. I'm not an expert, but um, that's just been my experience. Um, I want to ask another question about dairy farms, though, because, um, you know, I I did a long series of uh, programs last year about dairy, maybe eight or ten of them. And I talked to a lot of economists and farmers and, and um, you know, the, 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 the problem with dairy appears to be that there is a giant glut on the market of milk and we don't regulate our supply. And what I find so interesting about that um, is that it has, I mean, of course, it's decimated the dairy community because it has made uh, the prices go down so low that it doesn't, they don't even cover the cost of production, as I'm sure you know. And when company, when, when states allow that kind of big dairy operation to come in, it's like they are ignoring that economic aspect of it, that if you have 15,000 cows in one place, 
you're going to send, you're going to produce so much milk that all the other guys can't possibly compete against that. And I don't understand why, why farmers are not organizing uh, to uh, generate more support for regulating the supply. What do you think about that? Why, why is that not happening? Well, I would actually note that in my experience, it is happening, um, which maybe is, is welcome news. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've done some reporting on um, supply management, which uh, you alluded to, which is basically a policy system in which uh, we would have um, national um, a marketplace and a structured marketplace in which there's a limit on how much of each commodity supply is sort of in circulation. And this is how uh, Canada, for instance, manages its milk supply and actually used to be how the U.S. managed many of our commodity supplies. So uh, it's actually not a foreign concept. It it used to be sort of status quo um, for how our um, U.S. uh, farm economy operated. And um, that's definitely become a more and more um, palatable or exciting idea to, to dairy farmers that I've spoken to. I think even just a couple of years ago, um, it was it was something that was too radical to really even have a conversation about. Um, right. But now there's um, sort of national farmer convenings that are talking about or voting on supply management as, you know, whether they want to take that on as a policy priority. Uh, there's actually a, a new um, organizing campaign out of the Wisconsin Farmers Union that's called Dairy Together that is attempting to unite um, dairy farmers from really across the country, spanning all the way from the Northeast to California, um, to mm-hmm. talk about what type of uh, federal or national milk policy could um, could put dairy farmers in a better position, whether that's supply management, which is one of the ideas in the running, or other some other type of, of stru- restructuring of the market. So um, there's a lot of really active conversation in that space. I think that there's a lot of as I said earlier, just urgency from from farmers. I mean, Wisconsin, for instance, you know, the the dairy capital of the country is losing up to two dairy farms each day. And that's been going on for years. I mean, it's really staggering um, the the amount of farm loss that we're experiencing. So I think, again, as that situation has gotten worse and worse, and, um, you know, certainly the Department of Agriculture has not introduced any novel ideas about how to manage it, um, and Congress has also not introduced uh, or had much success with any um, novel ideas. I think that many farmers are are taking it on as as sort of their own issue to try to address and to build um, some support in the farming community around these new ideas. Yeah, I know it would be nice to see that happen. I don't. I mean. I feel like in this case, Congress and the Department of Agriculture have lagged way behind the realities, and that goes way, that goes right back to the Obama administration. I mean, I, I didn't see Tom Vilsack trying to uh, introduce any legislation that would have um, or encourage uh, legislators to develop any legislation that would encourage uh, supply management. And I would also add that Tom Vilsack went right through into the revol- through the revolving door and is now uh, you know shilling for the dairy industry abroad and trying to sell more milk abroad rather than trying to address the problems on the ground. And I think that's that's kind of sad and ironic as well. Um, what, you know, where where would this, I mean, if, if legislators were to get behind this, and this will be my last, I think my last question, if legislators were to get behind this, where, where would that come from? Would that come from, uh, you know, the, the senators or the congressmen from, from dairy or agricultural states? Or would it come from the department, the U.S. Department of Agriculture? Who, who would be sort of the point person if 
uh, say our government actually, you know, got its act together and, and did something constructive for farmers in this in the country? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that uh, certainly, you know, some of the the, the bolder proposals or, or more active conversations have happened in Congress. I think there are specific members of Congress who are really um, up to speed on this issue. For instance, another presidential candidate, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, has is has been involved in the dairy uh, the dairy sector because New York State has a dairy sure. industry that's quite large, and and she has proposed various types of. Um, not necessarily a supply management system, but just other types of ways to address the dairy crisis that's ongoing and has been for years. So there are members of Congress who are engaged on the issue. I think any type of um, next step would necessarily involve the Department of Agriculture because milk pricing, the way it's organized, does run through the Department of Agriculture. Um, but I, I would personally be surprised if, especially under the Trump administration, any major right. policy proposals that uh, shifted how we thought about um, dairy production would come out of the Department of Agriculture per se, um, though it, cooperation would be necessary just because of how the, the milk market is structured and how milk prices are set. So I think I think probably I'd be looking towards Congress um, and even towards state legislators just for novel ideas and, and ultimately to the farming community, which will be generating all of those ideas and proposals. Right, right. Well, Leah, thank you so much for this. I really, uh, I so appreciate your time. I think I've got everything here. Yes, I do. Um, I've covered all of my questions, and now is your moment to shamelessly promote yourself and your organization. So go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, please follow the Food and Environment Reporting Network. We're at thefern.org or uh, online on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, whatever your uh, preferred platforms are. You can follow me on Twitter at Leah J. Douglas or find my work online at my website, leahjdouglas.com. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. I hope you'll come back. Honestly, you were just absolutely terrific. I really appreciate it. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And Anytime. thank you to my... Oh, sorry. I'm, good. I'm glad you had a good time. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to say thank you for telling me how great my questions were. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> Ever needy ever needy. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Thanks to my sponsor and thanks Matt for helping me out with this yet again. Um, we'll see you next week with another great show. So long for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>